Have you ever thought back on history and wondered where you could have done the most good to warn somebody about something ahead of time? You know, there's been a lot of movies made about that or like cartoons or silly little things where someone's going to go back in time and warn somebody about something that's about to happen or help them to make a good decision before something that they know is happening. Maybe you think about this for yourself. What would be your moment in history that you would go back and say, hey, something's about to happen, everybody. Here's what you got to do. I thought through this myself. Maybe you go back and tell George Washington that maybe General Benedict Arnold is not the loyal soldier he appears to be. Maybe you shouldn't put him in charge of all those armies. Maybe you go back to Davy Crockett and you tell him, hey, I know you want to go to Texas, but maybe skip the Alamo tour this time around. Maybe you want to go back and be a financial advisor in 1929 and telling people how to invest their stocks before the crash. Maybe you want to go back and tell yourself to make sure you get the travel insurance for that summer vacation you planned in 2020 so that you can get your money back. Or maybe it's something more serious, like warning somebody to stay home before something like 9-11 or an invasion of some country. And these things can be fun and lighthearted to think about, but they also can be pretty serious. And the thought of being able to stop a catastrophe from affecting even one person is a very serious thing. Well, I want to let you know that you are right now living in the time of such an opportunity. Do not we, who live in the days prior to Christ's return, have a responsibility to warn the world about what is coming? You are right now living in the days before something that is going to be so cataclysmic, to use that word to describe anything else, would be laughable. And you have the chance, and not only the chance, but the mandate and the responsibility, the commission, to tell people and to warn people, to go out and say, there's an invasion coming from heaven. And you have the opportunity to survive, but not only to survive, but to be blessed and to be rescued through that same invasion. And while some of us may feel like I've been trying to do that and no one's been listening, whenever I try to tell somebody about it, I feel like they bite my head off. I feel like something comes back to hurt me or people drop me as a friend or I get passed up for promotion at work. We have to realize that the work must continue because you never know whom the Lord is going to call to himself. If you've ever had the blessing of leading people to Jesus Christ, I hope you have, you know that it is never the person you would expect. It's never after the message that you thought, that's the one that's going to get them. It was never right after you boned up on all those apologetics issues. It's always one that makes you go, wow, really? Okay, that guy. <laughs> oh, her. I never would have expected her to respond. Because that's who the Lord is calling to himself. From the unlikeliest of places come those that are willing to pledge allegiance to their Lord Jesus Christ. Their new Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this story as we begin in chapter 2, reading the first seven verses. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. 
But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Joshua is consolidated his, his rule. The people are with him, is what we talked about last chapter. And he sends out spies from Shittim. Shittim is another name for the area in which the Hebrews have been camped across the Jordan. It's also called the Plains of Moab. This is Israelite territory now. It'll come to be known more broadly as Gilead, which is the most prominent city on that side of the river. But Shittim, he's going to send them to spy out Jericho. And it reminds us of our time in Numbers 13, when we read about Joshua himself, who was a spy, sent in to go and spy out the land. He was at Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southern tip of Israel. They're at a different location. But Joshua the spy is now sending out two more spies. It's going to go much better this time than it did the last one. And he tells them especially to check out Jericho. We've read in Deuteronomy that they were encamped across the river from Jericho, which was a fortified city that would be their first military target after they crossed the river. You all know the story very well, of course. We'll talk more about Jericho and what the city might have been like when we get to that chapter. The point is for right now is if we're going to go across the river and we're going to invade this country, we've got to start at Jericho. So he sends them out to surveil this land, to reconnoiter, come back and tell us all about it. And these two men who are not named enter of all things a tavern or a brothel would probably be a better way of describing it. Now, why are they going in here? Well, you got to consider the kind of work they're doing. They're spies. They're coming in to find out what's going on in the city, but also you need to consider they're probably looking for any opportunity for there to be some kind of fifth column to help them overthrow the city. Where can we find those that would show us a secret way into the city, for example, or give us information on where the leadership stands? And if you're going to do that kind of seedy, underground kind of work, you've got to go to a seedy sort of place, and they end up at Rahab's house, where it probably would have been a place where all sorts of people like this meet together. It's a place where if you're going to do subversive activity, this is where you go. Now, perhaps they were simply asking questions, but it is also possible, and I think likely, that there was some level of recruitment going on here. They're trying to find people that can be allies for them that will assist the people as they come across the river, and that's exactly what they're going to find in Rahab herself. And it might make you uncomfortable to think of them going into the house where prostitution was going on, but uh, reserve your judgment for Rahab. For those of you that know how this story ends, you know why I say that. But they were found out somehow. It doesn't say how they found out. But again, if they're in this, this seedy sort of place, think of the, the tavern in the first Lord of the Rings movie where everyone's like in the shadows and they're wearing hoods. Like they're in a place like that. It's like, so what brings you here, gentlemen? It's like, well, we're Israelites. And I'm sure they didn't just come out and say it like that. Maybe they were more tactful, right? But they're trying to make contacts. They're trying to find out, is there something we can use to weaken the foundations here? And then somehow in that process, somebody figures it out that person then goes to the king of Jericho and says, hey, there's Israelite spies here. This is something that you need to remember. When you're a kid and, and as you grow older, you can maintain this picture. You have a picture of these places being totally distinct and separate from one another. But this is just like any other group of people. You've got millions of Israelites camped over here who have just conquered two other kings. You've got these people on this side of the, the Jordan River. There's going to be commerce. There's going to be intercourse back and forth between them. They're going to know about what's going on. Jericho is going to be on high alert because they can see them getting ready. Maybe they had their own spies hearing Moses give his big rousing speech about what comes next. 
and they're on the lookout for them. That is what Rahab is going to let us know in just a little minute here. But the king finds out. He sends guards to Rahab's place, says, we know you have Israelites there. Send them out. But Rahab hid them up on the roof under the stalks of flax, which I saw a couple of different ways you can interpret that. Either she had flax stored on top of the roof, which is usually flat in this culture, that she used for sale or for making clothing or who knows what, or that this was what she had used more or less to thatch her roof, had them hidden there, or maybe just that they were in an upper room that nobody knew about. Point is, they're being hidden. And they come back and say, hey, you got to send these men out. And she goes, well, yes, they did come here, but I had no idea who they were, and they're already gone. If you hurry now, you can catch them. Rahab is a little sneaky. And in her line of work, that probably where she picked that up. It's also, and I don't want to get too far into this, but there it is in the word. If you read this, this section right here, the, the Bible is almost being cheeky with the turns of phrase it uses to describe the people coming to see Rahab. When it says the men who have come into you, who have entered your house, they're not just accusing the men of visiting her house. They're accusing these men of, of soliciting her as a prostitute. And a lot of the language has, a, has some double entendre there, which led at least one of the books that I read to say this book probably would have been kind of saucy and even humorous for the Hebrews as they read it, because it's using a lot of language that would make you go, oh, wow, okay. Because they had their own euphemisms for that kind of activity. We have ours. And the Bible is brushing right up against it to give a little flavor to the text. And it's important for me to draw that out because we read it and it's translated. And it's translated very kind of religiously, right? But we got to remember this is also great art. And it's also being used in an interesting way. Well, she sends the guards away. The guards go out. And as soon as they go out, the, the gate is closed behind them. And that's supposed to be ominous because it's already setting up for us that the walls of Jericho are something you don't want to face because it's tough and it's impregnable. And when you see this story, we're going to draw this out, this parallel tonight, that just as these two spies were sent out ahead of time to the land that was set to be conquered by the armies of the Lord, so have we been sent out into this world as envoys from the king. We've been sent out by our Joshua. Remember, Jesus' name and Joshua's name are the same. It's, it, they both mean Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. We likewise have been sent into hostile enemy territory. The Jesus that I'm sending you out is sheep among wolves. And we know what that feels like to be a sheep among wolves. We have been sent out to be surrounded by activity and by people that if we had our brothers as righteous people, we wouldn't have anything to do with it. But the mission requires us to be there. And also, we are preparing the way for a coming invasion. And we too are facing threats as we wait for the proper time. That just as these spies have been sent out, so you and I have been sent out. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20, explains what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean? What is your job and your role? We know the Great Commission, but here's another way to think about it. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says it a couple times to make sure that we get it. We have ruptured our relationship with God. We're not right with God. 
You know what it means to have a relationship with somebody that is broken. You know how it feels to do something so bad that you know the next time you face your boss, it's not going to go well for you. You know maybe how to do something in your own marriage that if you face your husband or your wife again, there's going to be some serious talking to that has to happen. Well, it is a much similar but much worse situation that we face with God. But God, through Christ, has reconciled us. He's been working to fix that relationship and then sent us out, Paul says, as ambassadors. That we are coming from God's kingdom to this kingdom of the world to proclaim a message of reconciliation. We implore you, be reconciled to God. We often wonder, why is Jesus not returned yet? We're reading the book of Revelation, reading about all the things that are going to happen at the end, however you want to interpret it. And we say, what's taking you so long, Lord? Well, the reason the Bible gives us, among many, is that God is giving time for the gospel to fill the whole world. There's a place in the Gospels where Jesus says, this gospel we preached to all corners of the world, and then the end will come. Romans 11 tells us that the fullness of the Gentiles must come in before the Lord will return to restore Israel. That we can hasten the coming of the Lord through righteousness and through obedience, which certainly includes preaching as ambassadors to the world. The world itself is in rebellion against God. They have chosen to cast off his authority, culminating most of all in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. By saying, no, we will not be ruled by God. We will not be ruled by anybody. Nailing him to a tree and then saying, now we shall rule ourselves. That spirit that we have even in our own country that refuses to be ruled, that refuses to submit to anything unless we have had a say in it, unless we have been represented in it, can be a hindrance when it comes to your relationship with God because you don't have a constitutional republic when it comes to heaven. The Bible even uses the word despotes, which is the word despot or tyrant or dictator to define God and his Christ when it comes to us. It's a different relationship. And that can be difficult because there are those that see it as a mark of pride to go down swinging, to die alone, standing on their own individual liberty. And that might be noble in this world, but when it comes to God, it is the most foolish thing you could possibly do. Because the Lord one day will return to establish his kingdom. We say, you've cast off the rule of the king, and folks say things like, well, what king? Prove to me there's a king. I don't even believe that there is such a one. Well, one day he's going to come. He's going to take back what is his. And those that have rejected him are not going to be given a pass because, well, I didn't know. Because according to Romans 1 and other places, you know enough. You know enough to say, I ought to seek the Lord and see what's true. And the Lord will meet you in that place. We've been studying Revelation. We've been studying what the end will look like. It's not a pleasant time. And when we get to Revelation 19, where it describes the actual ride of Christ from heaven to take back his kingdom, it's a bloody picture. And it's not just the blood of Jesus that is shed, it is the blood of his enemies. That Joshua, so to speak, is standing on the other side of the river right now. And what's keeping him from coming across? Nothing. Nothing except his own sovereign will, his own perfect good pleasure. But in his mercy... God has sent out envoys. God has sent out spies, secret agents, you might say, although we're not supposed to be secret. Don't forget that. The metaphor only goes so far. <laughs> he has sent out those to go out and tell those that are in rebellion that pardon is being offered. 
The king is standing there with his army on the other side of the river. He could invade tomorrow, but if you today will bow the knee and renounce your loyalty to that king and serve the true king, you'll be forgiven and you'll be pardoned. And those of us that have been sent out as envoys in such a way will suffer great shame and degradation as we do that. We're going to be like these spies that are in a brothel of all places and then have to be hidden and are now, here are the soldiers in the bottom of the house arguing with this prostitute upon whose, whose kindness you are waiting. Either, either this woman is going to save us, who how do we know we can trust her? We probably can't. Or what are we going to do? Are we going to fight our way out? Do we just wait? Do we just kind of go down there and try to take out the guards now and run? Or do we trust Rahab? It's a, it's a shameful thing in one sense. But we are the forerunners of the vanguard of heaven. We've come to seek a negotiated peace wherever possible. Our king is so full of love and kindness that he says, yes, I'm going to take this back. I will not let my glory be stolen. Sometimes we think of glory in, in terms of only like this is something that is exclusive to God and it's mysterious. We don't even know what it means. Glory is something that you ascribe to a warrior or a king that is, I'm going to let my glory be known to the whole world. And for a king to have his kingdom usurped from under him and, all, and his own son be murdered and dragged through the street and crucified is a shameful thing. It's dishonorable. And so to reclaim his glory, he will return and take back what is his. We get this. We understand that. We understand it on the ball field that we're not going to let them come into our house and do this to us. That's glory. Now, God's glory is on a whole other level, but it's the same concept. And so he says, I'm going to offer a negotiated peace, but make no mistake, I'm coming back. But you know what's awesome about this? Is it's not just peace. It's not just, I won't send you to hell. He says, I'm not just going to not judge you. I'm going to abundantly bless you. Not only are we sent out as envoys to hand out pardons, we're sending out, sent out with adoption papers. <laughs> you can be one of the king's own sons or daughters. You can be invited into his banqueting table and sit at his side and even sit on his throne and reign alongside him, the word says. So some people will scoff at that idea and say, well, I, will, I refuse to renounce my own kingdom for some threatening invader. It's like, well, what, how would you like to be a prince in that kingdom? How would you like to be royalty in that kingdom, to share an inheritance with that kingdom. And not only adoption, but glorification, to be like him. Don't you love how in the New Testament through Christ, we are being offered the thing that the serpent falsely offered Eve in the Garden of Eden? Says, you will be like God. Not really, he's lying to her. But then you get to the New Testament and John tells us that when we see him, we will be like him. We're not going to be God, you understand. But it's going to be so amazing that John the Apostle doesn't even know how to describe it. So the idea of turning that deal is simply ridiculous. We come out offering those things. It's a better way to be. To say nothing of the fact that if you're sitting there saying, well, what kind of traitor would take a deal from an invader? Hey, you're the bad guy in the story. <laughs> He's not like Attila the Hun coming to steal your land. It's more like the king who's been kicked out of his own throne and wandered in the wilderness, but now comes back with an army to take back what is rightfully his. But you have the chance to join the winning side. And that's who we are. We're ambassadors in that way. With pardons and adoption papers and the promise of glory. And that's who we are. And that's who these spies were in, in a similar way. They weren't offering the same kind of blessings. Although, as we will see, Rahab is going to be abundantly blessed. 
for coming alongside them as she did here. Let's keep reading now. Verse 8 through 14. Understanding this metaphor that we're like the ambassadors, the envoys of the king. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Our expectation for Canaanites up to this point has not been a very good one. And that's with good reason. We will return to this subject. But the Lord had given the Canaanite people more than 400 years to repent of their idolatry, their sexual immorality, their sorceries, and their various iniquities. And he has sent Joshua telling them, you are to, to use the word she used, to haram. You are to devote to destruction everybody that lives in this land, men, women, and children, all together and take what is theirs because that's my judgment upon them. But the first encounter we have with one of these people is a Canaanite woman who bends the knee to the Lord. We need to understand how important that is. When we return to discuss the apologetics and the defense of the conquest itself, that the first person who says, I'll serve the Lord, God said, fine, you're pardoned, you can be on our team. You got to remember that, that the Lord is showing mercy to this woman, Rahab. Now, I very quickly want to just touch on this point because it does come up a lot. An awful lot of hand-wringing has been done by good, godly, well-intentioned people over the fact that Rahab lies here. But, but she did have, have men hidden in the roof, and she did know where they were, and they hadn't gone away. Rahab lied. How could God allow her to do that? All I can say to you is that the Bible only has good things to say about Rahab. Hebrews 11.31, she's in the hall of faith. Alongside men like Abraham and David, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. James 2.25, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Don't disapprove of something that God approves of. You don't need to go digging into your Bible for little legalistic quibbles over things that God has himself approved. Whatever you want to say, this doesn't make lying right, you understand, but God clearly approves of this woman and what she does here. And we as Christians need to make sure that we have a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of liberty when it comes to things like this. The classic example, of course, is those that were hiding Jews in their house during the Holocaust. I've heard people say things like, they should have just told the truth and expected that God was going to take care of them. Okay, that's very easy to say. It's much more difficult to actually be in that situation and know what's about to happen. And, you know, there is, I don't want to dive into the whole ethical thing here, but there is a sense of priority in Scripture. 
Jesus himself talks about this, doesn't he? You can't eat the show bread because that's holy bread. Well, David and his men are starving and about to die. You can eat the holy bread, right? Doesn't love come first? And aren't we as New Testament Christians set free from the, from the letter of the law to serve according to the spirit of the law? So I'm not going to get into that any more than this already here. Just if your conscience is bothered, just know that the Lord is not bothered by what she did here. And if you're going to take this off and say, the Bible says I can lie, you completely miss the points. <laughs> Rahab not only helps them, but she entirely defects to the Israelite side. She's honoring the Lord. She's bowing the knee to God and saying, uh, I'm willing to help you conquer my own city. I'm willing to worship your God and not my own. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to save my family, even if it means the destruction of my own city. Now, we might hear that and say, how dishonorable. What a traitor. Can you imagine someone doing that? A Benedict Arnold type of person. Or you think of Antipater, the father of Herod, who sold out Israel and Judea to the Romans. Well, that, that all works unless you realize that she's leaving the side of evil and wickedness to be on the side of the Lord and his righteousness. All other loyalties bow down to Jesus. We're going to talk about that in just a moment here. But she speaks of the fear that the Canaanites have. Maybe she's kind of been hearing them. You can kind of picture the, these guys like trying to have these subtle conversations and she's coming by and filling up drinks and kind of eavesdropping and figuring out what's going on. She hides them up in the, the roof. She comes up and maybe they're like, all right, what's she going to want from us? She knows they've been wondering, what's the attitude? What's the spirit of the people? What's the mood of Jericho? And she says, we're terrified. Everybody's heart melts within them. Why? Because we heard about Egypt. How you afflicted Egypt with 10 plagues? And I imagine that that legend might have even grown in the telling over 40 years, right? As it not, and they had plenty to work with to begin with. You crossed over the Red Sea. You crushed Sihon and Og, these two Anakim that were ruling on the other side of the Jordan. We're scared to death. She speaks of God's mighty works. And Rahab is convinced by these mighty works that the Lord is God alone. Verse 11 is Rahab's confession of faith. Is the Lord your God. Now remember, when you see Lord in all capitals, that's the name of God. Yahweh, Jehovah, the Tetragrammaton. It's the four letters, Y-H-V-H or W-H, depending on how you, how you want to transliterate it. That is the name of God. That He is God. And He's God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. Remember, at this time, they thought the gods were territorial. Baal was, was God here. This God was God over here. You go up the north, you gotta, you got to worship the northern gods. You go south, you got to know the southern gods. But she says, your God has no territory. He's God everywhere. Which is all right. That's kind of the whole point of what God did at Egypt in the first place, isn't it? He declared war, remember it says, not just on Pharaoh, but on the gods of Egypt as well. He's bringing back the knowledge of God to the world. And Rahab gets it. She's convinced. As simple as it is, she says, Yahweh God is the ruler over everything. I would be foolish to resist him. And her request is for deliverance for her family. And man, you could really think about this if you wanted to. Do you think that Rahab's mom and dad were proud of her? Living a life as a prostitute, seeming to have the run of this, of this brothel? You know, is this what every dad and mother dreams of for her daughter? But here she is saying, I want you to save all of my family if you will listen to me. If, you, if, you'll, if, you'll, well, if you'll accept my confession, shall we say. 
Will you come back and will you deliver my family? And yet it's going to be her and her faith in the Lord that is going to redeem her own people. She's a good daughter. And again, there seems to be a lot of this in this chapter. I read some folks that said Joshua was in sin for sending spies over in the first place. Doesn't say that. I read that, you know, that Rahab sinned for lying. Doesn't say that. I've read that it says that these men were in sin for cutting a deal with Rahab. Doesn't say that. We've got to dig out weird sins everywhere we go. It's obviously the right thing to do. This is a remarkable picture, and in fact a template, of what is required of a convert to Christianity. If you are going to become a citizen of the United States, part of the process is you give that first pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States. I am now renouncing this old allegiance and picking up this new one. And it's a great celebratory day when that happens. Have you ever had uh, a friend that became naturalized as a citizen? It's a big deal. It's exciting, right? And that's what is required of those that want to follow the Lord Jesus. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, 15. They were in Lystra. This is when they healed a guy and they thought that they were gods and they bring out this white ox with the garland of roses to sacrifice to them. And they're like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. He says, we also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see that same theme there? That our God serves the whole world. He rules over everything. Why would you want to serve these vain things? And then the Lystrans got upset and tried to kill Paul and Barnabas. Quite a switch in that story. But this is what it means to become a believer. And you know, the story of Rahab here isn't very romantic like a lot of our testimonies are. That I finally realized that Jesus loved me and he cared for me alone and I gave my life over to him. Rahab, this is a very almost political conversion. He's God. These gods are not. This is his land that he's given to you. So uh, I'm going to bow the knee and worship him. Oh no, she's missed it. No, she didn't. There are some folks that... They only know of the kindness and the love of God. They don't know anything about pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ. And hopefully if you start, it's okay to start from either place, right? You can start from knowing that God is God and I've got to serve him. But as you go, you're going to learn all about the abundant blessings and joys of serving Jesus. And if you start from a place of just Jesus loves me, this I know, that's okay too. But you do need to develop along the way a sense of allegiance to a king, He's going to give us three things here. To become a Christian is to pledge allegiance to Christ. And there's three things you need to renounce in order to do that. Number one is renounce every loyalty and serve only Jesus. If you're going to become a believer, this is going to become the highest loyalty in your life. Not your country, not your family, not even your husband or wife. Jesus made that very clear. Not to your favorite football team. (laughs) Now, we laugh, but there's some folks that take that pretty seriously, don't they? To your group of friends, to your unit, if you served in the military, your highest loyalty is to Jesus Christ alone. Now, the important thing to remember is that serving Jesus makes you a better citizen, makes you a better father, a better husband, a better soldier, whatever the case may be. But if it ever comes down, push and shove, I'm going with Jesus. You can command me to do something, but if it goes against my capital C commander's wishes, I won't do it. And there have been faithful men and women throughout all history that have done exactly that. 
There's so many testimonies that have come out of the, the oppressive communist regimes of the previous century that were pressured under torture and threat that your highest loyalty must be to the state, to the cause of communism, must be to this dictator or that. And there were men that we might, might even disagree with some of their politics who say, look, I'm all for the dream of the utopian vision, but I cannot renounce Jesus Christ. And they were sent off to the gulags for that. They stood under the proper loyalty of Jesus Christ. Number two, you've got to renounce every philosophy. This one's harder because we live in this enlightened age where it's kind of like every man for himself. You know, being loyal to something is just sort of passe now. But we're very smart people. We have ideas. And I'm not giving those up for anything. Well, guess what? Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to become like a little kid who has no philosophy. You can teach your kid anything. You might want to try it sometime, see what you can get away with. And you know, you do need to teach your children everything. Don't you know that? And I, I, we always said we ought to do this, and we never did. Like, we need to get a book and just write down all the things that we never thought we'd have to say to our children that we did. And then when, when they grow up, we'll have one of those, like, you know, peel-off calendars. We'll make a million dollars. Like, don't lick the window. <laughs> Dad, what is that? That's the sky, honey. What is it? Well, it's up, up there where the clouds and the air are. And that's where airplanes fly. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow, I really do need to teach you everything, don't I? We don't lie. Why not? Because you have to tell the truth. People will never trust you. And, oh, and they'll believe you. It's easy to preach the gospel to a little kid. I remember the first time Micah, when he was a little boy, ever really had a concept of, of religion, shall we say, was we were out at a cabin up in the woods that we used to go to, and you could see just every star. We had him out there, and he was real little. And he's looking up and he's like, wow. And I said, look at that. He said, God made all that, Mike. He goes, God's nice. <laughs> like, yes, God's nice. That's, that's good, man. That's, you keep that. You hold on to that. But to, I mean, to come back to my point here about philosophy, if you can't be like that, you'll never see the kingdom of God. So many folks come in like, well, okay, yeah, I know Jesus said that, but that's for all those ignorant, poor people that Jesus preached to. I've got degrees. I've done a lot of my own independent research on religion, and I, I've read a lot of books, and I've got some thoughts that I'd like to say. You don't get to have those thoughts. You get to submit to Jesus Christ. And it is very unfortunate that there are a lot of people who call themselves even pastors and leaders in the church who have shown themselves to be following a different philosophy. And they might be within the world of Christianity, might say, but whenever Christianity is in conflict with this other thing, they go this way every single time. So you might have, I don't know, political thoughts. You might have philosophical ideas about things. You might have religious ideas. You might fancy yourself a scientist and have all kinds of things that the Bible can't be true about. Well, the Bible requires you to renounce your old knowledge and submit to the new knowledge of Christ. And number three, you have to renounce every iniquity and pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, to follow only Jesus. You don't get to hold on to sin. I want to serve Jesus, but I still want to be able to get high. Nope. Well, is that really such a big deal? Well, first of all, yes. But here's the second thing. If you have anything that you refuse to give over in your service of Jesus Christ, guess what? You don't get to follow Jesus. Even if it were to be like, well, I, I'll follow Jesus, but if he ever asks me to sell my baseball card collection, I won't do it. 
Well, you, you need to go away then until you can sort through that. What, is just baseball cards going to keep me out of heaven? Apparently so, because you have put a condition on your obedience to Jesus. I remember one time very clearly when I was a high school teacher, there was this girl that was in our youth group, and uh, she was at our camp one time, and she fell under conviction very strongly, and she told us she wanted to become a believer, but we knew that she had some deep-rooted sin in her life, so we wanted to talk to her about it. And uh, she said, I, I want to serve Jesus, but I won't stop being gay. And I was like, then I'm not going to pray with you to ask Jesus into your heart. I can't believe you do that. Like, this is, I said, you, you don't get to come to Jesus with any conditions. Certainly not one that is a blatant sin like that one, but I mean anything, you guys. Well, if Jesus ever sends me to go to be a missionary somewhere, I won't do it. Really, you won't do it? You'll look God in the eye and say, no? You don't get to say, no, Lord, right? Lord means master. No, master. I beg your pardon? That's how I say it to my kids when they get a little sassy. They're like, hey, can you go take out the trash? No, excuse me. I mean, yes, sir. You renounce every iniquity and you follow only Jesus. Failure to change allegiance in this way is failure to enter into the peace offered by grace. Oh, good. I get to skip the coming invasion of the king. All right. But if you haven't renounced those former loyalties, you are still a citizen of this world and you will still fall under the haram. You'll still fall under the ban when it comes. You are a conquered foe. You bend your neck. You swear fealty to the Lord of heaven and earth. You acknowledge that you've been a rebel. And you say, from now on, I'm going to become a faithful servant. You look back like Rahab did on all the amazing stories of what God has done and say, I'm convinced. I'm serving Jesus now. Serving Jesus now. Not, well, I'm kind of a big deal in the world. So maybe God will bring me on. I'll be like a, a junior board member. Uh, no. If you're not willing to come in and scrub toilets and muck out stables, there's the door, friends. Because we're servants of Jesus Christ. Rahab got it. Rahab got it. And she's an example for all of us. Verse 15 to the end now. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Rahab helps them escape. Kind of a fun action adventure kind of story here, huh? It says her house was in the wall. There's another... Well, there's a couple of ways this could have been done. It could have been that the wall was, uh, I forget what it's called, but it was a double wall. You'd have you know, a thick wall on this side, a little space where houses could be built, and then another wall. And the houses would actually be used during invasions as ways to defend the walls from the outside. It also could have just been that the house was built as part of the wall and that she had a window that was in it. In any case, she allows them to get out and escape to the hills. And the hills around Jericho are full of caves. They're full of places to hide. And that's where they're going to go. 
And the men lay out the specific terms of their deal. Okay, she is defecting, basically. She's coming over to the Lord's side. They're going to explain exactly what is required of her to do this. And she is to hang a scarlet cord in her window. Apparently, it was distinctive enough that it would be noticeable from the outside. I read one author who said this could have been, in fact, the mark of her house as a house of prostitution, although the word is not clear on that, but there would be a certain irony to that, wouldn't it? To make sure also that no one leaves the house. Like once we show up, you hang that cord in the, house, in the window and don't come out. <laughs> we'll know that that's your house and we'll leave it on, but if anybody comes out into the street, we're not going to know who they are just by looking at them. That's going to be on them. But if anybody touches your family, it'll be on us. We cannot guarantee your protection unless you stay in this house with the scarlet cord hanging in the window. Now, we're going to call this a very loose typology here. This scarlet cord. I really think that this cord is supposed to be a callback to what happened at the night of Passover. In the terms of our deal with God and the change of allegiance, we learn something from hanging this cord in the window, so to speak. And this could be, this could be an image you could push way too far, but boy, does it preach, which means maybe it's legitimate. So I'm going to go ahead and go there. In Exodus 12, you know the story, the night of Passover. The Lord said, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, in verse 12, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You all know the story. The tenth plague. They're supposed to kill a lamb, spread its blood on the doorposts. And that when the angel of the Lord, when the destroyer came through, they would pass over them. That's where the term Passover comes from. Well, this is very similar to what we have here. You hang this in the window, the destroyers, when they come to the city, will see that and they'll pass over your house. The language is very similar. Likewise, the blood of Jesus is what needs to mark your life if you expect the angel of death to pass you by. Is that specifically what was intended when the author of Joshua wrote it down? No, but people that quibble over that stuff are no fun at all. Let's go ahead and go there. Because Hebrews 9, 13 tells us, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, great Trinitarian line there, by the way, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Our Joshua secured our deliverance through his own blood as a substitute on the cross. What does that mean? It means that Jesus died so that you didn't have to. All the judgment and torment that you deserve for all the things you've done, Jesus took that on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out on him. The pain of the return of Jesus, of the invasion that we've been using that picture, was poured out on him there so that you don't have to endure it. That's what the cross means. It wasn't just a tragedy that a good man was killed. It wasn't just like the assassination of a, of a great political figure. This was something cosmic, supernatural, and in fact, metaphysical. That when Jesus died on the cross, 
Everything that you deserve was poured out on him. All that pain, all that mental anguish, all that physical torment, his back flayed open, his head pressed down with the crown of thorns, the beating in his face, his beard ripped out, the nails in his hands and his feet, the spear through his side. All of that was what you and I deserve. It is very, very difficult to face what you have done, isn't it? I have found more often than not, people that are driven to addiction, that are driven to grievous sins, it's not always something that has been done to them. It's they can't handle the things that they themselves have done. Folks that spend an awful lot of time posting really basic things online about how your failure is beautiful and don't let anybody look down on you and forget the haters and it's okay and everything's fine. Such people are riddled and racked with guilt because you say one true thing to them and they bite your head off because there's this, this guilt that they're just trying to keep at bay. It's like being in your, locked in a room with a rattlesnake. It's like Just keep it over there, nobody move. And then somebody comes in and says, you're gonna have to deal with that. It's like, would you stop it? It's gonna bite. But Jesus has already taken all that for you on the cross. You must be marked with the blood of the lamb. You've got to hang that scarlet cord out of your own window through faith. How, what does that mean? By accepting that Jesus' sacrifice counts for me. Just like Rahab believed the story of the Exodus and the defeat of the Amorites and made a decision to serve that God, you likewise must believe the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus and choose to worship him as God. That's faith. To use another illustration, you're taking all of your chips off of everything else and putting it all in on Jesus. Which means you don't have any chances with any of those other religions anymore. I'm believing that Jesus was right and everybody else was wrong and I'm willing to bet my eternal soul on it. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. Through accepting his sacrifice and turning from sin. Rahab is given by James as an example of faith with works that followed. That she believed, and she believed so much she was willing to help the spies. You can't say, well, I believe, but you guys got to get out of here on your own. That doesn't work that way. You need to hang the scarlet cord in your window. Be marked by the blood over your doorposts to let the blood of Jesus cover your life. Because when the invasion comes, when Christ returns, those who are marked by his blood will be passed over. It'll be a day of rescue for them, while the rest will die. There's no secret. There's no mystery. It is a simple exchange. Your sin for Christ's righteousness. He takes your sin and puts it on the cross and gives you his righteousness, which you will carry into heaven instead. Jesus' blood instead of yours. To be received through belief, manifested in works of renunciation and faithfulness like Rahab did like Rahab did. If you're not going to hang that cord in your window, don't expect judgment to pass you by. Verse 23, we'll finish up the chapter now. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They've got a good report just like Joshua came back from the land with a good report. You can see how there's a lot of parallels to the first time through, except this time they're going better. You might call this Israel's greatest generation, the one that believed to take the promised land. God is about to be true to his word and to deliver the land with all of its inhabitants over to the Hebrews. 
Yet how fascinating that from the unlikeliest of places, a brothel, comes one who is willing to renounce her gods and renounce her sins in order to serve the mighty Jehovah. It's unexpected. It's supposed to be a little jarring for you to come out of reading the law all about all this righteousness that they're supposed to do and the first one to believe in God and serve him is a harlot. Is are we allowed to do that? I wonder if they came back and said, where did you meet this woman? Ah, well... Not only would Rahab be saved, though, Matthew 1.5 shows us that she was in the very messianic line of Jesus. Rahab would marry a man from the tribe of Judah, and they would have children that would culminate in Jesus Christ himself. How much should we take from that picture? Lord says, not only am I going to take this harlot and save her, not only am I going to bring her into my family and make her an Israelite, I'm going to have the Messiah come through her. Why? Because he's trying to teach us something. He's trying to demonstrate to us that nobody is beyond the grace and mercy of God. Nobody gets denied their application if they're going to fill out the paperwork for a pardon, so to speak. No one's going to show, hey, I, I heard about this gospel thing. Is this where I sign up? Oh, sorry, you don't qualify. No way. Jesus had, an, had a lot of prostitutes that followed him during his ministry. How many? Enough that the gospel writers felt the need to put it in there. <laughs> Enough that the Pharisees said, I'm not following. You see who he's walking around with? You see how these ladies are dressed? I, I, I know who, what she does for a living. And now she's following this guy? Do you, think that, you don't think they were saying nasty things about Jesus behind his back? Oh, I know why he travels with prostitutes. I know why he travels with tax collectors. He's taking all the money for himself. But Jesus didn't care about that. He cared about saving these people. Nobody is beyond God's salvation. Whether you yourself are a prostitute or a frequenter of prostitutes, salvation is extended to you too. We must never be so stuck up as a church that we cannot welcome somebody with an incredibly sordid past into God's house. And not only that, but to permit them and encourage them to testify and tell the whole world what God has done for them. And you maybe have gone to a church where you, you come out of a certain background and they're glad that you're there, but they'd rather you not talk about it. Look, I know it's great that God saved you, but I don't need you telling everybody what you used to do. I hope that every one of you is willing to tell your story all the time. And we're just going to stand up and say, praise God. That's what God can do. That's what Jesus is able to do. When the church becomes the kind of place that is just trying to be respectable, we run into trouble. We never want to pick a category of people and say they're outside the bounds and we don't want them here. If you would have a problem with a bunch of people with blue, pink, and purple hair sitting in the seats with piercings and dressed all weird, and you'd have a problem with that, eh, you need to check your heart, friend. Well, they haven't all gotten saved yet. Okay, that's fine. Bring them here. We want those that nobody else wants because that's who Jesus wants. We want this to be a place where the Rahabs of the world could come in here. What would you think if an actual prostitute walked in the door? And you met her. What do you do for a living? And she's being real dodgy about it. And then you come to find out, I know who that is. I, you, I hope that you all would go in and throw your arms around her and say, welcome, Jesus loves you. What if she starts messing around with people? Well, we'll deal with that in good time. But it's not like you're any prize either, my friend. <laughs> 
I mean, what, you can put this in our own terms. What if it was some girl comes in here who does pornography for a living? That's what she does. Some guy who comes in here who runs that sort of thing. What if you bring in somebody that's been on the news lately for some notorious crime that they've committed? Would you be excited to have them here? I hope you would. Like, man, you're here. You know why you're here? Because God's got something for you. God's got something to tell you. Well, they haven't really cleaned themselves up yet, and they've been here three weeks. I don't care if it takes three years. We're supposed to be the ones that are walking in the truth and in the light so that people can come and find this place. And where the, will there be sanctification that comes through? Will there be salvation that comes? Yeah, but you know what can happen? A lot of times people that have a, a really hard background or they know good and well that they're in sin and that they don't really belong in a place like this, you understand why, how I phrase it that way? They'll test you. You tell them, hey, so what brings you in here? Well, here's what I do and this is what I've done and this is why, and you're like, whoa, and it kind of shocks you. That your job then is to smile and say, we're so glad you're here. Come sit with me. Come sit with me. I want you to come and be my friend. Where are you going to lunch today? You want to go out to lunch? I go, I don't know if we should. We don't want to affirm sin. You're not affirming anything. You're just showing the love of Jesus to somebody. Why are you being so nice to me? Because let me tell you, I'm, I'm no prize either. And Jesus Christ died on the cross. And after everything he did to save me, I can't do anything but be just as kind and gracious to everybody who walks through that door. We do a lot of ministry with Positive Choices, the Pregnancy Center, and it is heartbreaking and, and infuriating to me how many people come through the, the Pregnancy Center looking to get an abortion because my dad's an elder at our church, and he says that if I have this baby that, you know, it's going to be shameful, so he wants me to go off and get an abortion. Or my husband found out that I had one 40 years ago, and he left me, and I can't tell my church because they'll kick me out too. Where's the grace? Are we not all here because of grace? What are you going to do if somebody walks through the door who's living as a transgender individual? You better not get in their face and shout at them. You show them love that they can't find anywhere else. Love with no strings attached. This is what's going to happen, by the way. When the Lord sends revival to this nation, the churches are going to be filled with post-op transgender people that are sitting there celebrating and singing God's praises. They don't look any different, but their hearts have been totally transformed. If you're not okay with that, get on your knees until you are okay with that. Now, wait a minute. Why would God do that? <laughs> How, what do you think the soldiers responded to this? Okay, we're going to kill everybody except there's this one brothel. Don't kill anybody in there. <laughs> Joshua, are you sure about that? Aren't we here to eradicate sin wherever we find? Isn't this the judgment of God? Aren't we on a holy war? Yeah, but this, one, this woman has faith. Her whole family has faith. They're believing. And as long as they're in that room, they are exercising faith to be saved, and we're going to allow them to be saved. Why would the king offer pardon to those who have usurped his throne? Because of his great love for those he has made with his own hands. You know, you get mad at your kids. You might even have days where you're like, I don't know if I want anything to do with these kids anymore. And I'm, not, I'm not even being silly here. Like that, that's, that's real. That, that happens, and that is real, where it's like, I don't think we can see each other anymore. This is just not good. I cannot continue to support what you're doing. Or, you know, if you're going to continue to speak to me or your mother that way or whatever it is, you're not welcome in this house anymore. That happens. But there's always that heartbreak in your heart. But that's my baby girl. That's my little boy. I, 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 can't, I can't handle this. Even if it was needs to happen for righteousness' sake, how much more must the Lord feel about his wayward children now? 
He sees everything that you've done. Think of the worst individual you've ever seen. God is able to see not just what is wicked, but everything that is lovable and redeemable about every person. Imagine the heartbreak of God to watch his children deliberately throw his grace in his face and walk away. That is why the Lord was willing to let his own son take the penalty on himself so that he could offer it freely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, we're using this picture, and it's an appropriate one, of the king coming to restore his throne and this, this language of bowing the knee and swearing loyalty. But guys, it all goes back to love, the love of God. We are envoys of the love of the king. This is why we're going to be sent out and have to be in places that we'd rather not be in and be hunted down and have to escape in the night and rub shoulders with people we'd rather not rub shoulders with and even be tormented and killed because we are there to spread the love of the king. And we're willing to give up our own lives because our souls are fine. But this person needs somebody who's willing to lose their life in order to tell them the good news. You are not too far gone. Nor is the one to whom you have been preaching the gospel, my friend. They're never going to believe. You don't know that. Rahab got saved. You probably wouldn't even bother to go to Rahab's house if you're doing door-to-door -door ministry. What if somebody sees me at the door of that place? I was preaching the gospel. Sure you are. Nobody's too far gone. And we must endure great suffering until that day. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be escaping out of the city through the window on a scarlet cord. But when the king comes, we're going to be vindicated in all of those proclamations. And all those who persist in their rebellion will be crushed. Make no mistake about that. But those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus will be saved.